Welcome back to another episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast. I'm Mike Siciliano, Dean of Students of the Upper School. I am joined today by Dr. Leonard Sachs, world-renowned author and speaker, author of four books for parents, and might I add, for teachers in schools as well. We've gotten to spend a little time with you here the last couple of days. Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Can you share a little bit about your history, your background, and uh, how you came to be doing what you do? Well, sure. Uh, so I attended public schools in Ohio, K through 12. I earned my undergraduate degree in biology at MIT. I earned my doctorate in psychology and my uh, MD, MD and PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. I did a three-year residency in family medicine. I have been a medical doctor in the United States for 37 years. And I launched a practice in Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., uh, back in 1990. And... Uh, because, you know, I never planned it this way, but because I'm both a psychologist and a medical doctor, my practice kind of became a magnet for kids who were having various kinds of problems. Uh, and I uh, noticed that the boys' problems were different from the girls' problems. The boys' problems uh, tended to be disengaged from school um, and uh, not motivated, and the girls uh, were more likely to be anxious or depressed. And... Uh, at the time, we're talking late 90s, early 2000s, I didn't see that there was much awareness of this mm -hmm. in the popular literature. So I wrote my first book, Why Gender Matters, published by Doubleday 2005, um, which to my great surprise kind of made a bit of a splash and I, I was invited to speak at, at a variety of schools. I was on the Today Show with Al Roker, which is, is still one of the best TV episodes I've done. Al Roker... You know, I've been on, on uh, you know, the Today Show f actually five times, uh, two with Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer, I don't mean to be uncharitable, but in off screen, he's not very friendly, he's not very interested. <laughs> okay. But on screen, he pretends to be. But Al Roker really was friendly and interested, and he took me behind and he spent a lot of time with me trying to understand what is the book about, what am I writing about, what's my observation, sharing with me about his own family, his own kids, his observations. Mm -hmm. So then when we went on camera together, you know, I addressed him as Al. It's very natural, because yeah. we've been Al and Leonard for yeah. an hour at this right. point. And, and it's a really good episode. It's just Google my name and Al Roker, you can still uh, bring it up. I'm much younger and more slender because that's 18 <laughs> years ago. Well, and um, you know, now obviously this experience is going to be yeah. at the top of your broadcast. Well, I've gotten uh, fat and bald since then, but <laughs> but it is uh, it's a good episode. Uh, and so then I went on to write my book, Boys Adrift, um, Girls on the Edge, The Collapse of Parenting, which is my only book to be a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and then more recently, I've published updated second editions uh, of Why Gender Matters, Boys Adrift, and Girls on the Edge. Um, so, uh, but I'm still a family doctor. I'm still a practicing uh, family physician. I'm cut back to part-time, so it's easier for me to do sure. these speaking engagements yeah. without messing up the office schedule. Uh, but uh, yeah, I still see patients, so that's where I'm coming yeah. from. Well, today we're going to focus this podcast in particular on your Why Gender Matters book, which is which is your first one. And we got to hear as a staff a lot of the research you've done, which I think, you know, people hear Why Gender Matters right now and they think of all, all kinds of different things. Um, what, what fascinated me was you have a lot of scientific data on how boys and girls are different. And maybe you could start by sharing a little bit of that. Sure. Well, that's what I'm going to do with the parents. Later today, we're going to... to 
uh, go through sex differences in hearing, vision, smell. So it turns out that for many odors, uh, women have a sense of smell that's better than a man's sense of smell. Hmm. How much better? Five times better? Ten times better? No, for many odors, it's 100,000 times more sensitive. So the woman says, how can you stand it in here? It totally stinks. I'm going to throw up. And the man says, I don't smell anything. (laughs) And again, I give an example from my own practice where a husband and wife went away for vacation in August. You know, it gets hot in Maryland, and um, they came back after their two-week vacation. A woman stepped into her kitchen, and she's like, wow, something died, it rotted. I'm going to throw up. This smells terrible. And her husband said, I don't smell anything. And it turns out they both came to see me over the next few days. And the wife said, you know, she said, my husband is some kind of barn animal <laughs> because the whole place smells like a carcass rotting on a pile of pigment manure. It's horrible. And my husband claims he doesn't smell anything. And I said, you cannot be angry with him any more than a sighted person can be angry with a blind person. He does not smell it. I mean, this is great news. Are there other things you can give me (laughs) that I can say scientifically, honey, you can't be mad at me? And then the husband came in to see me and he said, you know, my wife's a witch, except he didn't say witch. He used a different (laughs) word. He said, she's a witch. She's going on and on about how the place stinks and she wants me to hire a contractor to come in and rip open the wall because she's convinced something must be rotting inside. And I said, I don't smell anything. And I said to him, you cannot argue with her any more than a blind person can argue with a sighted person. The smell is real. It's overpowering. It's intense. You do have to hire the yeah. contractor who did come in and rip open the wall and, and found, found a dead, dead right? rat rotting in a puddle, um, uh, which he was able to remove and clean up. Um, you know, there are pastors who do premarital counseling uh, for uh, when a young woman, young man are going to get married, which I think is a great idea. I think this should be part of it <laughs> uh, because, you know, I have seen... Uh, husband and wife who were very angry at each other, as these two were, but they didn't know. No one had ever told them that men and women are experiencing different sensory worlds. Likewise, mom gets angry with her teenage son. She says, look, I don't want you bringing food to your bedroom, but if you do bring food to your bedroom, you have to remove it. You can't leave the food to rot underneath your bedroom. How can you stand it in here? It stinks. And her son says, I don't smell anything. (laughs) And mom thinks her son is being defiant and disrespectful and lying. He's not. He doesn't smell it. And I would argue that best practice in that situation, the mom should say, look, if you ever hope to live with a woman, the standard of cleanliness that will apply is not your standard, but her standard. No food in the bedroom. And if you do bring food into the bedroom, leave nothing behind. Leave no trace. Everything needs to be removed. Again, the lack of awareness of sex differences can drive a mother and son apart. So this evening we'll talk about sex differences in hearing. Turns out that girls and women have better hearing than boys and men, more sensitive hearing. Um, And it also turns out that hearing diminishes as a function of age. Hmm. So let's imagine a 45-year-old man speaking to his 15-year-old daughter. So again, an example from my own practice. I'm a family doctor. 
And a 15-year-old girl tells me, she says, she says, you know, I'm really tired my fa- of my father yelling at me. He's always yelling at me. And I, so I get home, I go to my bedroom and just stay in my bedroom with the door closed because I don't like to be yelled at. So I bump into, the, the father comes in a few days later. And I said, Dad, um, your daughter shared with me that you're always shouting at her. And he said, Dr. Sachs, I never would shout at that girl. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying to you? <laughs> and I was like, well, yep, yep, yep. Um, and I explained to him about sex differences in hearing, that hearing sensitivity, auditory acuity diminishes as a function of age, and that at every age, girls and women have more sensitive hearing than boys and men. So I said to this man, next time you talk to your daughter, whisper. I mean, not literally whisper, but lower your voice way, way down. And then I bumped into the girl a few weeks later, and she said, oh, my goodness, my father can actually talk like a normal person. He was happy to make the accommodation. No one had ever told him that there are hardwired male-female differences in auditory acuity. When you explain it to him, he's happy to make the accommodation. Again, the lack of awareness of sex differences in this case was literally driving a father and daughter Mm. apart. And it's easy to fix if you just explain what the differences are. Yeah. You shared with the teaching staff as well, and I don't know if you do this with the parents too, but about drawing and and how kids draw differently. Yeah, it's very hard to do that on a podcast. Okay. Uh, But uh, so I cite five studies in which researchers uh, gave kids a blank piece of paper and a box of crayons and asked them to draw whatever they want. And most boys, not all, but most boys draw people, uh, excuse me, most boys, not all, most boys draw a scene of action at a moment of dynamic change, like a monster eating an alien, a rocket smashing into a planet. Most girls draw people, pets, flowers, and trees. And uh, in the presentation, I trace these differences, which are very robust, to differences in the visual system that have been demonstrated by Jerry and Alexander and others, uh, showing that... In girls, the visual system has more resources in that system called the magnocellular, excuse me, the parvocellular visual system that's looking for color, detail, and texture. Boys have more resources devoted to the magnocellular visual system that's looking for speed, direction, change in direction, collision. Um, And these differences appear to be robust across species. Not only are they found in humans, but also in chimpanzees and two species of monkey. Uh, So this evening we'll talk with the parents about being a better parent and understanding uh, the picture your son is drawing and not insisting that he draw more like his sister's picture. Yeah, good. What else do you see in parenting where this this lack of awareness is leading to parents making mistakes unintentionally? Yeah. So a big difference is in um, the trajectory of development. Girls mature faster than boys do. And it's a big difference. Uh, Girls reach the halfway point in brain development by 11 years of age. Uh, Boys not until 15 years of age. Girls reach full maturity in brain development by about 22 years of age. Boys not until 30 years of age. Many of your listeners have heard that the human brain doesn't reach full maturity in brain development until 25 or 26 years of age. 
That number, 25, 26, that's an average. The correct number is 22 for women, mm. 30 for men. Yeah. 22 plus 30 is 52. 52 divided by 2 is 26. So the average human reaches maturity and brain development by 26 years of age. That's a, that statement is true but meaningless Yeah. because 99.98% of humans are either male or female. And what's true of the average of male or female is not really relevant uh, but um, the average man does not reach full maturity in brain development until 30 years of age. And that explains a lot if you think about it. Yeah. So when I'm dealing with teenage boys and I say, how come you did that? And their answer is, I don't know. That's because their brain is literally only half developed. Uh, well, I wouldn't say their brain is only half developed, but they have not reached full maturity. They are only halfway as a 15-year-old well, towards the maturity. prefrontal. No. Uh, cortex, the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cor cortex, which is very important in anticipating consequences, <laughs> is not developed. The cerebellum is pretty fully developed in the 15-year-old, so each region of the brain develops along its different trajectory. But this has great relevance uh, really all across childhood and adolescence. So um, again, an, an example from my own practice, mom is concerned about her 18-month-old son. She said, when my daughter was 18 months old, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I could pop her on my knee, bounce her up and down on my knee, and I'd say, goo goo ga ga, and she'd say, goo goo ga ga, and so I'd say, ee o o, and she'd say, ee o o, and we could go on like that for 20 minutes. We just had a great time. We just crack each other up, uh, mimicking each other's noises. And I tried that with my son at the same age, 18 months of age, and someone was riding their bicycle and it, it made a noise, and he looked out front. And then there was another noise that looked that way. He's very distractible. And I looked this up online, and it said it could be a sign of autism. I'm concerned he may have autism. Distractibility can be a sign of autism. I said, well, that is true, uh, but it can also be a sign of boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she was not reassured. She insisted on a referral. So I gave her a referral to TLC, the Treatment and Learning Center's next to Shady Grove Hospital in Rockville, Maryland, for a comprehensive play-based assessment. And they do this, they do a very good job of assessing vocabulary, among other things, in 18 months old. But it was, it was, I shouldn't have done it. I should have tried to talk her out of it. I should have assured her that everything was fine. I made a mistake in writing that referral because she, she scheduled the, the evaluation and she came back in tears. She said, they're very concerned they said he is significantly below average. They said the average 18-month-old has a vocabulary of about 65 words. He has only 40 words. He's, he's, below, he's way below average. Researchers at Cambridge University have, have done a large study looking at the average vocabulary of 18-month-olds. They have found the average vocabulary of an 18-month-old girl is about 90 words. Mm -hmm. The average vocabulary of an 18-month boy is 40 words. 90 65. plus 40 is 130. <laughs> yeah. 130 divided by 2 is 65. The average vocabulary of an 18-month-old child is 65. That is a true statement which is utterly meaningless. Mm -hmm. Unless your child is intersex, an XXXY chimera, both male and female, but that particular anomaly has a f frequency of about 1 in 2 million live births. If your child is a son, is a daughter or a son, that statement, the average child has a vocabulary of 65 words at 18 months, is meaningless because you don't have a child. 
you have a son or a daughter. If you have a son, the average vocabulary is 40 words. Compare boys to boys. This boy has an average vocabulary, not below average, average. There is no grounds for concern. He's fine. Um, and I'm kind of disappointed that the, the uh, specialist doing the evaluation at the treatment and learning centers was using norms that are not normed to gender. Yeah. Your norms have to be normed to gender. Don't compare boys to the average child. Because in some domains, like vocabulary for 18-month-olds, that's going to be profoundly misleading. Compare boys to boys and girls to girls. So as, as a parent, what are some things that I should specifically do to nurture my girl as a girl or my, my son as a boy? So you want to be careful here. You don't want to reinforce gender stereotypes. Lots of girls hate dolls. Lots of mm -hmm. boys hate football. But you do want your daughter to grow up to be a confident and successful woman of character. You want your son to grow up to be a confident and successful man of character. But it turns out that what girls need to become strong and confident women in character is different from what boys need to become confident men of character. What we can say with confidence is that boys need a community of men and girls need a community of women. And this is the major point that I make in the concluding chapters of both Boys Adrift and Girls on the Edge, that we need to create communities of men, communities of women. We used to have these. Uh, 50 years ago, Robert Putnam and his, his colleagues at Harvard have shown, 50 years ago, there were many mechanisms by which boys could engage communities of men, both formal and informal mechanisms. He, he, his graduate students dig through photos of American neighborhoods from the 60s and 70s, and, and here's a bunch of guys working under the hood of a car from Lake Forest, Illinois, 1967. And his graduate students interview and dig up who were those men? How old were they? Well, they were men in their 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, and teenage boys and 12-year-old boy. Strong bonds across generations, informal associations. Um, and you'll find all this in his book, Bowling Alone. So bowling used to be much more popular in the United States. But more importantly, from Dr. Putnam's perspective, it was done differently. 50 years ago, most of the bowling in the United States was in bowling leagues. Since Tuesday night might be the women's night and Thursday night was the men's night. And he and his colleagues uh, dig through the data. Okay, who was in the bowling league in La Crosse, Wisconsin in 1968? Who was on this team? Well, let's see. On this woman's team, there's a 53-year-old woman, a 44-year-old woman, a 27-year-old woman, a 17-year-old girl, and a 12-year-old hmm. girl. Strong bonds across generations. Kids in the United States still go bowling, but they go bowling alone, meaning not literally alone. But instead of this 17-year-old girl, girl going bowling with a community of women, she's going bowling with a bunch of 17-year-olds, girls and boys mixed together, which as far as Dr. Putnam is concerned, is bowling alone. When Dr. Putnam uses the word community, he means bonds across generations. And the bonds across generations have been broken. We must restore them. We must restore the bonds across generations. That's a major focus, really, of my books, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and The Collapse of Parenting. Have you seen examples of that happening well in, in today's era where it seems like there's less and less of that? Well, sure. It begins with supper. 
And I tell parents, as I said to the parents uh, at this school this morning, I said, you've got to fight for supper at home. And I showed them the research showing that the more evening meals kids have at home with at least one parent, the lower their risk of being anxious or depressed. And that's a very robust finding. You've got to fight for supper at home. But again, parents, middle-income and affluent parents are often shuttling their kids from one activity to the other and literally eating a sandwich on the way from travel team soccer to computer coding class. And I tell parents, don't do that. Cancel the activity. Prioritize supper at home with family. Strengthen the bonds across generations. Instead of, you know, the unspoken message when you're driving your kid from one activity to the other and not having supper at home because you're driving to computer coding class, the unspoken message you're sending is that being amazing and having all these activities to put on your college application is more important mm. than the ra- relaxed time at home with family. Don't send that message. Cancel computer coding class. Prioritize supper at home with family. So maybe a difficult topic for a lot of people to discuss right now, although I will say it is it is certainly being discussed all over the place, is is the idea of uh, transgenderism, the increase in, in people who are identifying as transgender and um, here in California, especially lots of, of laws and practices around that. Um, I'm curious how that intersects with your work of, of why gender matters and, and what your take is on a lot of that. Sure. So in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued guidelines, uh, what the American Academy considered best practice for evaluation and management of kids who are transgender or have gender dysphoria. And the guidelines are unequivocal. They say uh, if, a, uh, me, if a boy announces he's a girl, then your job as the pediatrician is to facilitate and affirm that transition. And if the parents resist or push back, you should, uh, if, they, if they refuse, you should consider a referral to Child Protective Services to begin the process that will lead to the parent's loss of custody. The child becomes a ward of the state and can undergo gender transition. And I read the guidelines with care when they came out um, because the previous standard of care was what what many doctors call watchful waiting. So uh, the five-year-old boy announces he's a girl. Why do you think you're a girl? Uh, Well, I I hate lightsabers. I hate football. I like ballet. I like glitter. All the boys I know like lightsabers and football, and the only people I know who like glitter and ballet are girls, so I must be a girl. And Ken Zucker, uh, Toronto, who studied these boys now for more than 30 years, has, has concluded, based on his research, that best practice is to say, hey, you love ballet, that's great, we'll sign you up for ballet class, but you're going to study ballet as a boy, not as a girl. And Ken Zucker has followed these boys for 20, 30 years. Uh, 15 years down the road, when the boy is 20 years of age, he no longer wants to be a girl. He no longer says he's a girl. He is a man. He may be a gender atypical man who prefers ballet and glitter over football, but he is a man. He doesn't want to be a woman, and he's perfectly happy as a gender atypical, gender nonconforming man. There's more than one way to be a man. Not all men like football. Some men like ballet and glitter, and that's fine. Well, the American Academy specifically denounces Ken Zucker's recommendation um, as bigoted, transphobic, um, and, and asserts that they uh, constitute uh, conversion therapy. And, in support, and, they, and they say that that approach, 
Watchful waiting is harmful, and we know it's harmful. How do we know? They cite one reference in support of their claim that watchful waiting is harmful, that watchful waiting is conversion therapy, and conversion therapy is always wrong. They cite one reference. That one reference is a 1994 paper studying efforts to convert gay men to being straight. And that paper reported that those efforts were not successful, that trying to convert gay men to straight men is not successful. Okay, let's think about the confusion demonstrated in that sentence in the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. First of all, it's confusing sexual orientation, gay versus straight, with gender identity, male and female. Which are not the same thing. Which are not at all the same thing. Secondly, they're confusing adults with children. They're citing a study with adults in support of a policy regarding children, which is a remarkable error for pediatricians to make. You would think that pediatricians would understand that recommendations for best practice in children should be based on what works in children and not on a study, a 1994 study of gay men, adult gay men. And so I wrote a letter to the editor pointing this out, which they published, which is still on the American Academy of Pediatrics website. If you go to that page, the official guidelines, first author Jason Rafferty on best practice for evaluation management of kids with gender dysphoria, transgender, scroll to the very bottom. You will find that my comment is still there. You know, I've been reading the guidelines of the American Academy for more than 30 years. And usually when they publish guidelines on which they do on a wide variety of topics, and then they'll publish a letter from a doctor who say, well, these guidelines are totally ridiculous and uh, totally stupid. Usually a few weeks later, there'll be a comment from the authors of the guidelines saying, well, uh, Dr. Smith has failed to understand the importance of this paper and has misinterpreted this paper. There's never been a response to my letter or the three subsequent letters by three other pediatricians who wrote in agreeing with me. (laughs) Um, uh, So unfortunately, the guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics are not based in evidence. They contradict the available evidence. And that's most unfortunate. The American Academy has now become politicized. And I wrote an essay on that uh, concern called Politicizing Pediatrics for an online website called Public Discourse, uh, where I also presented more evidence in support of the claim. The letter, a letter to the American Academy has to be limited by their own sure. rules to 500 words. My essay for Public Discourse is longer. Uh, so what's going on? Uh, between 2016 and 2019, there was a tripling from over 4,000 to over 13,000 in the number of young Americans undergoing gender-affirming surgery. The majority of those operations is girls, young women, undergoing bilateral mastectomies because they believe they are boys, they don't want breasts anymore, and so the surgeon removes removes, uh, normal breasts. This woman is now, uh, has undergone a mastectomy Uh, That was very, very rare 10 years ago. And 2019, the latest year for which we have national numbers, more than 13,000 such cases, uh, a tripling in three years from 4,000 to 13,000. What's going on? Every culture of which we have enduring record, you talk to the comparative anthropologists, as I have done, people who study 
how other people have lived in other times, other places, every culture of which we have enduring record, teaches girls to become women, teaches boys to become men. And we no longer do that. Enduring cultures have a community of men for boys, a community of women for girls. We used to, we no longer do. That's the work of Robert Putnam. And it turns out that when you strip away those supports and those guardrails, kids can go off the guardrails. If you don't raise kids up in the way they should go, they will be confused. And in my own experience as a family doctor, parents consulted me. Their daughter uh, at 14 announced that she was a, a boy. And I said, all right, I want to see everything. I want to learn everything I can about your child. And uh, beginning as a three-year-old, she insisted on dressing up as a princess for Halloween. Uh, and they showed me the photos. Um, they showed me her drawings, uh, very girly, lots of pastels. Uh, her favorite free time activity, fashion design. Uh, she's a very girly girl. Not at all gender nonconforming. But at age 14, she fell into depression, as many girly girls do. And she saw a TikTok video that said, hey, girls are depressed, boys aren't. Transition to being a boy and you'll no longer be depressed. And followed up with some YouTube videos that said the same thing. And she announced, I'm a boy. And the parents consulted me, what's going on? I said, she's not a boy. She's a girl. She's actually a girly girl who's depressed and who mistakenly thinks that if she transitions to the male role and gets bilateral mastectomy and starts taking testosterone, she'll be happy. She is mistaken. We can say this with confidence based on the research. She gets a mastectomy, starts taking testosterone, grows facial hair, voice changes. She's not going to cease to be depressed. The evidence we have suggests her depression may worsen. You're going to increase the risk of suicide. And we have good research on this point. Again, transgender activists will often say, would you rather have a live son or a dead daughter? Yeah. Implying, claiming that transitioning to the male role will improve her mental health. It doesn't. There is no shred of evidence to support the claim that this girl transitioning to the male role will experience any improvement. On the contrary, we have a great deal of evidence that suggests if she transitions to the male role, things will not get better. They will likely get worse because at some point she's going to realize, wow, I've lost my breasts, I've taken testosterone, I've compromised my fertility, I may never bear a child, my voice changes are permanent, even if I stop taking uh, testosterone, I've got this raspy voice and this stubble that won't go away on my face, I've ruined my life. Um, and we're now getting lawsuits filed by women at 22, 23, 24 years of age who say, look, I wasn't properly counseled. I went to the gender clinic and they just said, yeah, absolutely. You say you're a boy, you're a boy. Here's, here's your testosterone. And yeah, I wonder, underwent bilateral mastectomy and now I'm 22 and I'm still miserable. In fact, I'm a lot more miserable because my voice changes are permanent. My facial stubble is permanent. I lost my breasts. I may never have children. And they allowed this when I was a child, and I'm going to sue. I think that ultimately is what's going to stop the craziness. You know, 
Which do you think in, that's where we're headed? That eventually well, there was a Portuguese doctor, Antonio Moniz, who developed prefrontal lobotomy. Uh, in the 1930s, we had no medications that were reliably effective for this schizophrenic who uh, is psychotic and, and violent, and some of them were. Um, nothing, uh, you could try sedatives, uh, but um, Dr. Moniz found that if you sever the connections between the prefrontal lobe uh, and the rest of the brain, suddenly this previously violent, uh, impulsive individual shouting and hitting now is calm and compliant. And, you know, the arrogance of highly educated people should never be underestimated. And uh, uh, many doctors said, wow, this is, this is cutting edge, literally cutting edge. Psychosurgery was a popular term in the 1940s. That's what they called it, psychosurgery. We're going to use these modern techniques to heal people so that they no longer need to be chained as some... Some of these people literally were in restraints 24-7. Uh, isn't this wonderful? Modern medicine allowing people to literally break the chains. Um, and he was awarded a Nobel Prize in medicine in 1949 for developing the technique of prefrontal lobotomy. But from the beginning, there were people who said, hey, these people are zombies. You're destroying their personality. And that that concern was present from the beginning, but people paid no attention. Like, hey, this is cutting edge. We are in the know. We are the experts. We know better. And these these uh, dissenters uh, are not evidence based. We're we're the we're the real scientists here. Uh, Nobel Prize in 1962. Ken Kesey wrote his book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was a very skillful and vivid portrayal of a man with a very vibrant personality. And many of you have seen the 1970-something movie starring Jack Nicholson playing that role, who then is forced to undergo lobotomy and it turns him into a zombie. And the book was so powerful, and other accounts like it changed. Hmm. And within just a few years, the book was published in 1962, 1967, the last prefrontal lobotomy was performed in the United States before the movie came out, I would add. Um, so we're going to need stories and we're going to need lawsuits uh, to bring this to an end. There is no question this is going to end. Uh, all psychoses do, whether it's the fascination with prefrontal lobotomy, which lasted from the late 30s to the early 60s. That's almost three decades. Yeah. Um, we're only a few years yeah. into this madness, so I'm not sure when it's going to end. I have no doubt it will end. As Christians, we can be confident that the right will triumph, but we don't know when. And the psalmist asks, how long, hmm. Lord, how long? I don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, I mean, you make a powerful case for the idea of these cross-generational communities and I like what you say about, hey, how do we teach men to be men and women to be women? But that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, well, we're a man, we got to like football. 
or we're a woman, we got to like, there is, there are stereotypes. That's not the answer. So what does it mean for a man to teach a boy how to be a man and a woman to teach a, a, a girl how to be a woman? So I do lead workshops where we specifically focus on that. And I talk about how 40 years ago, people in gender studies thought that masculine and feminine was a one-dimensional continuum. <coughs> masculine and feminine is a one-dimensional continuum. And to the extent that you're more masculine, you're necessarily less feminine. That turns out not to be accurate. It turns out that masculine and feminine is a two-dimensional construct. You can be very masculine or not. You can be very feminine or not. You can be both, which is androgynous. You can be neither, which is undifferentiated. And part of becoming a mature adult who's comfortable in your skin is figuring out where you belong on that two-dimensional graph of masculine and feminine. We're all a mix. Uh, as Jung knew 100 years ago, we're all a mix of masculine and feminine, and we all need to find our place of comfort. So I've been married 33 years, and for 33 years, I have done all the grocery shopping because I love to shop for groceries, and my wife hates to shop for mm -hmm. groceries. My wife has done all the lawn mowing, and she fixes the lawn tractor when it breaks down, and she's very comfortable with that. I wouldn't have the foggiest notion how to fix a lawn <laughs> tractor. Our screen door just broke. She fixed it. She's the handyman. We are both gender nonconforming. Um, and according to the American Psychological Association, gender nonconforming means transgender. Well, that's not a true statement. And we're going to go into detail looking at that statement this evening with the parents. We're going to look at the exact words of the American Psychological Association. American Psych Psychological Association is, is false. It's claiming that if you're gender nonconforming, you are necessarily transgender. Well, I'm gender nonconforming. I like ballet better than football. I like grocery shopping better than fixing lawnmowers. I'm gender nonconforming. I did macrame and art as a teenager. I didn't play football. Um, so according to the American Psychological Association, I'm transgender, but I'm not. I've never wanted to be a woman. I've never thought I am a woman. I'm not. It's simply not accurate. And we have enormous research, which I cite in my book, Why Gender Matters, showing that gender nonconforming and transgender are not the same thing. A man can like ballet and glitter without being a woman. A woman can like fixing lawn tractors and wrestling hogs without being a man. And the great irony of this transgender activism is a reinforcing of gender stereotypes. So now, if a girl says, yeah, I want to be combat infantry, people are like, oh, what are your preferred pronouns? You're going to transition to the male role, which is so weird for me because, you know, I grew up in the era of Sally Ride, the era that girls can be anything, girls can do anything, girls can be astronauts, girls can be combat infantry. That was the uh, dominant uh, mode of the 1990s, but that's gone. Hmm. Now... If this girl wants to be combat infantry, people are asking her, oh, you're gonna, what are your preferred pronouns? You're gonna transition to the male role. This boy wants to dance ballet. You know, what are your preferred pronouns? Are you, gonna, are you a girl? Uh, no, there's more than one way to be a man, more than one way to be a woman. And as I said, the great irony of the transgender activism is that it is reinforcing gender stereotypes. Yeah, which I know a lot of the feminists in particular have had a big issue with. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like you're making the case that having these cross-generational communities allows people to find other people, pieces of themselves in other people who are older, who have navigated it. 
without giving up their gender identity, right? right. Uh, if, if I'm 14 and I'm in a, a cross-generational communi- uh, cross community with men of, of enough men of a whole bunch of different ages, I'm going to see pieces of myself in those people. And I don't go to a place of, you know, well, maybe I'm just so different that I'm in the wrong gender. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's a, a, a good illustration because the variety of human experience is immensely broad. And um, I encourage, I often counsel churches in this regard. Uh, You know, uh, the church youth group has lost its way at many churches. And and the church youth group is a pizza party for high school kids. That's not what they need. The church needs to create a community of men for boys and women for girls. Now, I, I do not endorse the Mormon church. I, I regard it as a heresy, but they totally understand this. And after worship, the girls go with the women and the boys go with the men. And they've been immensely successful at growing their communities. And I find the same thing in the Muslim communities. And I'm, remarkably, I'm very popular in the Muslim communities and we can learn from them. They also have the girls with the women and the boys with the men. That's what the community should be doing. That's what your church should be doing. That's what some churches are doing. And when I meet with pastors, meet with churches, I share with them, look, this doesn't cost anything. It's just a different way of thinking about what kids need. Teenagers don't need pizza parties with other teenagers. They can do that on their own. The church can facilitate bonds across generations, and it should. Last question and maybe taking it a little more out of sort of the broad policy or group level uh, area and more to the personal. I mean, I imagine you have, you know, you've shared, you have parents coming to you saying, hey, this is what my kid's saying. Um, You know, I think schools all over the country have have kids saying, hey, I'm wondering about my gender identity. What's the right thing for kids in that space? How do you counsel those parents and those kids in your office who are struggling with that? Well, it depends on the situation. And you, and you really need to begin by digging deeply and listening carefully and getting every kind of information that you can. And Ken Zucker, again in Toronto, has documented this at great length. So he had a seven-year-old boy who insisted that he was a girl, absolutely certain he was a girl. And Ken Zucker got every kind of information about this kid and discovered this boy is being beat up by 10-year-old bullies at school. And the 10-year-old bullies never touched the girls. They only beat up on younger boys. This boy has concluded if he transitions to being a girl, they won't beat up on him anymore. So, yeah, okay, this boy's in a, in a pickle, but the solution is not to transition him to the female role. The solution is either to stop the bullying or move him to a different mm-hmm. school, uh, uh, which is what happened, and the problem was solved. You need to understand what's going on in this kid's mind. Why does this child believe that they are the other gender? Where's that coming from? It has different sources. The three-year-old boy, so, so I'll give you another example. I was just in Roswell, Georgia. This is a suburb, a uh, very lovely suburb north of Atlanta. I spoke to parents. And a pediatrician met with me, um, and we had a long chat after my talk. And she's a pediatrician. She told me how... Um, this family had just moved from California to the Atlanta suburbs. And a new patient 
uh, twins, actually, same birthday. Um, one boy, one girl, a new patient visit. Now, a new patient visit with a pediatrician means a comprehensive exam. You're going to examine the child head to toe, make sure nothing's been missed. And she exam- the pediatrician examines the boy. Everything's fine. She then examines the girl and comes to the genital area, and there's penis, scrotum, and testicles. And the pediatrician told me, she was like, oh, wait, I, I thought you said you have a daughter. They said, well, Justin told us when he was three that he's a girl. And our California pediatrician said, uh, yes, um, uh, the American Academy is very clear. You need to transition him to the female role, and we're going to change the birth certificate. Justin never existed. Your child's name is Emily. Your daughter's name is Emily. You're going to raise him as a daughter, and we'll talk down the road about castration and female hormones. Uh, Okay, that was a big mistake. We know a lot about this boy, the three-year-old boy who says he's a girl. We know that he has almost certainly a very high number of CHE codon repeats in the androgen receptor gene, as do all gender nonconforming boys. Gender nonconforming for boys appears to be a genetically programmed trait. And again, you'll find all this research in chapter nine of my book, Why Gender Matters. Um, But he is a gender nonconforming boy. He's not a girl trapped in a boy's body. He is genetically very similar to the boy who wants to do ballet, who wants to play with glitter, who wants to draw people, pets, and trees. And that's all fine. And you can cherish him for who he is and raise him up. And he can become an artist, a dancer, but he is a boy, he will become a man. He has XY chromosomes. Uh, He will not be a football player, and that's fine. But to set him on the road that leads to castration and lifelong treatment with female hormones, infertility, and the impossibility of ever fathering a child is wrong, is malpractice, is psychotic. And by psychotic, I mean it is utterly detached from reality. It's very similar in many formal respects to what we saw with Dr. Moniz and the Nobel Prize he got for prefrontal lobotomy in 1949. And we, as agents of reality, have to fight back. Well, Dr. Sachs, thank you again for coming to campus, for sharing so openly your research and your views, and for meeting with our parents and teachers. Uh, We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. And thank you to those of you listening and watching. If this is the first time you've seen one of our Eagle Perspective podcasts, you can check out other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on YouTube, and elsewhere podcasts are available. We look forward to seeing you again soon.